To Third Impact Anime, I am your host Bill, and with me today is Austin. How's it going, folks? And Sully. Hello, hello, hello. And today we're kind of having a sequel, spiritual successor to our Con mm-hmm. Mari episode that was recorded way, way back in episode forty-four, which it seems like a lifetime ago now. Uh, we are talking about the KonMari method again because just recently Netflix has released uh, a, a new reality show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo and we thought that we could get our thoughts on the new show and whether our opinions have changed on the KonMari method as a whole and maybe uh, how it applies or has our thoughts a changed about it when applying it to anime fandom and fandom in general. But before we get into that, let's see what everyone has been watching or playing. Uh, so first off, let's go to you, Sully, since I think the last time you were on was the Castlevania episode. Right, uh, so it's it's been a while. It's been a, a hot minute, as Austin says. Um, mm-hmm. So I have, me and you, Bill, we were talking about this before we were we started recording, I've actually been really, really kind of burnt out with uh, pretty much everything, like life in general, really, but specifically with anime, so I've not actually been keeping up with anything, and I'm getting to this point where I'm kind of okay with the fact that any anime produced after the year 1999 holds very little interest to me anymore, I cannot keep up with the seasons, so... Uh, I actually have not been watching anything. I even took a break from watching Maison and Coco, and what I've been watching right now, uh, believe it or not, is I've never seen Cheers for as much as I make jokes about being <laughs> really into Frasier. I've never seen Cheers, so I started, like, uh, uh, about maybe a month ago watching the series all the way through, and I'm, I'm at season five right now, and uh, me and a friend, like, without even knowing it, began doing the same thing about the same time, so now we're... Uh, around the same point together constantly texting each other going like oh I can't believe this happened or oh I don't like how this was written and it's it's kind of like my new thing and I'm like this is where I am when I hit 25 as I no longer really keep up with Japanese cartoons but I'm really into the whole Sam and Diane thing and I am for the record such a Diane but (laughs) Uh. (laughs) Uh, but one thing I'm not burnt out on is I actually kind of rekindled my love with reading American comics, and I've been kind of, uh, again, though, with the anime thing, it's like anything produced past a certain year for me, if it's like anything past the Bronze Age, I'm very bored, and I'm like, I'm done with this, I'm tired of the edginess, so I've been rereading stuff going back to the Golden Age and the Silver Age, and, uh, 
really kind of going by those Denny O'Neill Batman stories I really loved when I was in high school. So that's kind of what I've been doing. And also another friend of mine, we've been kind of talking through that again. Nice. Well, I imagine, because uh, it was just recently announced, you'll be coming back a little bit, because didn't Viz announce that Iris Sarazzo is now getting this big, uh, nice addition finally getting released in America? Yes. Well, well, Iris Sarazzo did have some comics released by Viz, but they were done in single floppies like American comics were, and they're... Uh, they Gotta did love them. Yeah, they did a few collections, like, uh, I guess you could call them graphic novels, but they're not very substantial. I know that uh, Edwin was telling me about them before we were recording, but this is going to be like a nice... Uh, bound omnibus edition with a new translation and I've seen the cover artwork and it's just it's just gorgeous so I'm really excited about that because um if I recall correctly the original viz uh translations they flipped them and yes. you know they tried to americanize them a little bit but they're also responsible for the lum curse what is a lum curse so uh I can't remember her name but she did an interview about working with general productions back when they were trying to breach or uh come into America and she also was the letterer for Ursa Yatsura the original Viz run and she said every person who uh lettered or did any sort of editorial work on the translation either ended up in an accident or got sick or had an emergency or something bad happened and it became known colloquially as the curse of lum and so I'm wondering if Lum's dark magic will also be working itself on this edition because I'm sure if suddenly every uh, manga publisher at Viz or translator or whatever uh, starts reporting that they've caught some sort of disease or have broken a leg that we know that she has returned with a vengeance. <laughs> well, hope hopefully the curse-breaking action was releasing it unflipped so maybe maybe the spirit of lum is now appeased because she's in her final form well you know they flipped it and it flipped her off (laughs) seems so those annoying aliens i'm i'm just happy that lum is getting back in the spotlight with discotech's release of beautiful dreamer uh the manga now coming out it's she's really having a coming out party just well, rock it is her 40th like, anniversary. Here I am. Uh, oh. Last, oh, last September would have been the 40th anniversary of the very first comic being published. Uh, and so I guess that's why now, I mean, there's actually been like a lot of Lum merchandise coming out. I know that there's a yep. huge Lum plush that I really want from Japan, but she's about $50 at most places. But uh, let's say she sparks joy for me, and I really kind of want to get her for my collection. <laughs> But we're really lucky to live in a, in a period where we're seeing a lot of older stuff. I mean, Devilman and uh, oh. Cutie Honey got those omnibus editions as well as Harlock and now Ursa Yatsu. Even though they're done by different companies, uh, just they're very similar to each other. And it's kind of nice seeing those works getting respect. And when Bill mentioned Beautiful Dreamer, I want to encourage everyone to buy that Blu-ray or DVD. Because if more of those get bought, if we get more excitement, then hopefully more of the films and even... You know, even more hopefully, the actual series will finally get uh, a new release here, an updated Blu-ray, hopefully. Yep, that'd be great. Uh, I could totally see, because Urusa Yatsura is a fairly long show, uh, I could totally see them trying to do the SD on Blu-ray model for that one and hopefully release it in just, like, maybe one or two sets. Um, something that wouldn't be too cost-preventative. I know that there was a fairly large-scale Blu-ray release of Urusa Yatsura in Japan, but I I don't really know if Lum Fever is, like, 
hot enough to sell like large quantities of Blu-rays in the U.S., so it might be more cost-effective if if Discotech were to get the rights to the series to just release it in 480p on uh, SD on Blu-ray. But what do I know? I've got no idea. That's just my brain thinking. They'll well, probably I'm do everyone what... catches Lum favor. Mm-hmm. They'll probably do what they did, what they're doing with the Loop and Red Jacket, and just release it in different DVD sets. Uh, that is true, but um, and that is a, an, an interesting thing too because they could probably release it a lot faster and in a lot small, like a lot smaller um, quantity if they did it all on a, on like a single or two uh, Blu-ray discs. But I'm sure that always depends on the project individually. Mm. Well. I'm just amazed with all these 70s manga re-releases with Devilman, Captain Harlock, now Irisaratsura, you can never say it right, Irisaratsura. Uh Where's my Lupin the Third re-release? I'm tired of hunting down these Tokyo Pop volumes. Come on. <laughs> I, thought said that man- I thought you said that manga was just, like, not good. I, I, it did, I'm denouncing what I said. I, I want all the Lupin, even if it is bad. <laughs> Bill is a true yeah, completionist. <laughs> I mean, I uh, felt the same way when uh, I think it was Funimation said they're releasing Time Book in 24, but only as a digital release. And I'm like, that's not helping my problem here. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, I don't care how I might be the only person who cares. No, you have to do a physical release because when the end of the world comes, I'm going to need that DVD. True. <laughs> uh, and now... Austin, what have you been up to? Well, I have been, uh, well, the busiest thing that I've done lately is that you and I, Bill, we went to uh, Ichiban Con last weekend, and uh, that was fun, with a lowercase f, I would say. (laughs) Um, But uh, I have been preparing myself uh, physically and emotionally for the uh, release of Kingdom Hearts 3 coming out here in only a mere 11 days from the time of this recording. Uh, so I'm very, very excited for that to come out. Uh, I've been replaying through some of the games a little bit. I've been playing some more Dream Drop Distance, but most recently I finished up a another playthrough of uh, 0.2, the uh, Aqua story that's basically Kingdom Hearts 3 Chapter 0. Uh, because it the ending of that one basically leads directly into uh, the beginning of Kingdom Hearts 3, um, with it ending with like Sora, Donald, and Goofy flying off in the gummy ship off to uh, Olympus Coliseum, and that's pretty much how Kingdom Hearts 3 is going to start. Um, and uh, so I'm very excited about that. The hype is real. I've got my Super Mega Ultra Limited Edition pre-ordered. It's already paid for. It should be coming in the mail. I hope Square messes up and sends it to me early. That would be awesome. Uh, I hope they don't mess up and send it to me late, forcing me to go to Walmart or something horrible like that to buy a copy of it on uh, on release day, only to then sell it as soon as it comes in the mail. But I don't want to have any uh, any weird overlap where I don't get to play the game if it's out. So uh, I will. That game will be in my hands. Um well, I will say it's been nice knowing you, Austin. Uh, I will miss <laughs> you while you're on your a month trek to get through Kingdom Hearts three. Um, I know we'll, a podcast on it will come eventually when you get through it. Uh, so I'm just saying my goodbyes now, so that mm-hmm. way I'll not I won't be 
Where's Austin? Oh, wait, I know. He's playing Kingdom Hearts 3. <laughs> that will be the case for likely a few months to years, or possibly until Kingdom Hearts 4 comes out, which <laughs> will be probably when the PlayStation 7 launches. Uh, yeah, knowing off Kingdom Hearts, uh, the timeline, Kingdom Hearts 3 will be released, and then you'll get a bunch of side stories and spinoffs for about 10 years, and then you'll get Kingdom Hearts 4. As long as there's something to play, I mean, Nomura, Nomura's been playing with my heart since I was 11 years old. He can just keep on doing it. Well, hopefully he, he, he won't go breaking your heart. <laughs> yeah. He couldn't well, if he, he tried. <sighs> uh, yeah. So, Ichiban Khan, Bill. Yeah, Ichiban Khan. Um, mm-hmm. I would also say it was fun mm-hmm. with a lowercase f. Um, Ryan and Marissa, fellow Third Impact uh, crew, did some panels, and I think they did really well with some bad circumstances. I uh, completely agree. They're, <laughs> um, yeah, they they did their Batman in Japan panel again, among other things, and I really, really like that panel. Um, and Ryan finally listened to me uh, through Sully, or well, hold on. Finally, Ryan listened to Sully through me and included the um, canceled Godzilla versus Batman thing Thank in his you. panel. So exactly. So I, I remember that you had mentioned that Sully way back in the um, Batman Ninja episode, I think. Um, and he finally put it in the panel, and it was awesome <laughs> you know if he doesn't have it there is a script floating around i think i might have a copy because it is bonkers yeah i think he i think he said that he read it and he mentioned it in the panel um so yeah people people are aware that it is out there yeah but their their panels were really good but w- what happened to them was they were usually in a uh, room separated by a fake wall next to the big music thing that was happening at the time so one night it was the limp sync battle where they were playing every Mimi song that you can think of that would happen at a con uh bohemian rhapsody ymca all that was next was fireworks that Katy perry needed to start playing yeah it's all r- those you know classic anime tunes you know like yep. <laughs> all star by smash mouth you know, Never Gonna Give You Up by Rick Astley. Just all those classic yeah. anime tunes. Um, all they need to play next is, uh, what's that Dragon Force song? Fire fire Through the Flames. <laughs> through the Fire and the Flames. <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> then, then, then I think they've covered every like internet song per year at that point. So Play the entirety of Emotion by uh, Carly Rae Jepsen. <laughs> uh, maybe Rebecca Black's Friday. Uh, oh man but yeah and then then another night they had the Hamilton sing-along panel I love that anime (laughs) which when I think of anime I think of Hamilton (laughs) me too man this is what you think of yeah it's just Mm -hmm. that just that I'm I'm not surprised that that got in because of its popularity but it's just like it's not even tendentially related to anime but is it though because like I'm not in I I don't know anything about Hamilton other than the basic premise but like I remember it being big like three-ish years ago because I remember like the first time I went to Ichiban is when they were Hamilton God's players and they were going going to have a sing-along I don't think it actually happened and now I'm like I thought that the the fire had burnt out at this point. I mean, is am I wrong? I think it's, 
I think it's one of those things, like, there's always going to be that small group that really hangs on to, like, that specific fandom thing that was mega popular a few years ago. There's always going to be some people still riding the uh, riding the waves of that and still enjoying, like, actively enjoying that thing, even when most of the community seems to have moved yeah, on to something like, else. Like, like that's, that's the true, that's kind of true with Doctor Who right mm-hmm. now, because, like, I would argue that the modern peak of Doctor <laughs> Who was probably, like... 2009 through 2011 but obviously that shows is never going to go it's never going to go away it's just going to change its levels of popularity and there will always be some sort of doctor who presence at like anime conventions or sci-fi cons or comic cons or whatever or, it's always going to be around or at an anime convention there will always be a homestuck panel which was inexplicably <laughs> somehow there will be I, which, I feel like homestuck is more explicable than than Hamilton at this point, though. I, I would agree, because Homestuck, at least, I mean, I don't know that much about it, but doesn't it, like, it makes, I mean, it references anime in it. But it ended, like, five years ago. I thought it was You're still right. going. Uh, it's just, I, I don't think so. No, it's over. It's over. Like, the guy who created yeah. it, I think, ended it. So... Yeah, I just, I, like, I just remember it just came like as a wave, and I I just sort of surfed the top and just like you know it'll go away eventually, and I I guess I just never noticed when it did. Yeah, um, but other than there's some of the weird panel choices, there was some good stuff. Like there was a really yeah. good video game uh, quiz panel that we went to. That uh, was so well organized. I don't remember that gentleman's name, but he did a fantastic job. Yeah, I mean, and also he traveled pretty far. I think he was, like, I I traveled, like, four or five hours just to be at this convention, so... Yeah, he said he came up from Georgia, because didn't you say that you also went to that same game show at, uh, at uh, Anime Week in Atlanta? No, well, uh, I think that was him, like, he said he went to, he was at AWA. Oh, okay, Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Bill, you weren't at AWA, never mind. Ryan Ryan said that he went to that one, I think. Either Ryan or Edwin told me that he went to that same game show. Okay. But yeah, it was well produced. Um, Mm -hmm. But the other panel, I have to mention it, because I am a fan of it. I went to the One Piece panel, uh, kind of excited, because it's like, well, I'm a One Piece fan, so... I, and I want to see, because based off the title, it sounded like an introductory guide to One Piece. And I want to get as many people into One Piece as I can, and I wanted to see how this person would do. So, I go in there, it's an it's an older gentleman, uh, he has a bunch of video clips laid out on the screen, so of course he starts out with the four kids One Piece song, which everyone in their grandmother knows. And then afterwards, he goes, well, I didn't do any preparation for this. <laughs> and, it, and it just made me so frustrated that it's just like, really, dude? You didn't do any preparation? So it basically, it basically turned into audience Q&A. And because it's One Piece, it had what I'm going to credit, this is a Tobias uh, phrase, is it had the Gundam effect of... Well, since it's a Gundam panel, the only people that show up to it are Gundam fans. And mm-hmm. that was the exact same thing uh, for this panel, where he basically raised his, asked the, group, asked the audience, who is just starting out with One Piece? No one raised their hands. 
Uh, who is in East Blue, which is the very beginning arc? No one raised their hands. Who's at the time skip? Or who's past the time skip? Everyone raises their hands. Who is at the latest arc currently in the manga right now or in the anime? Everyone raises their hands. And it basically becomes a discussion of what's going on in the current arc. And I'm like, this is cool because I'm a One Piece fan and it's cool to talk to people about it, but... This isn't what I was sold on based off the title of this panel. And as someone who is a part of a group that does, I think, really uh, really well done panels, I'm just frustrated that you had come in with no preparation whatsoever except for video clips and has basically inspired me where I'm just going to say, screw it. No one is doing the proper, proper One Piece panel in my eyes, so I'm going to do one, damn it. <laughs> I'm I'm doing I'm I, I don't know if it'll get approved but AZ 2019 One Piece panel hosted by yours truly is coming if they approve it. <laughs> yeah, Bill, Bill, you are on the warpath. I yeah. I admire that. Yeah, but yeah, um, uh, uh, and then ahead. the last thing I wanted to mention was the mm-hmm. was the Otaku flea market. Oh yeah, yeah, which um. I, I did really well, and I think Austin did really well in selling things that we had, uh, we had uh, grown to want to get rid of, because mm-hmm. um, Austin and I shared a little a little table, um, and of course, I love the Otaku Flea Market, because you can get really good deals, and it's always interesting to see what's in there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of um, Tokyo Pop volumes, some figures... Uh, a lot of people selling um, older DVD sets. Uh, I I personally did really well. I found a major Kusanagi Ghost in the Shell figure, uh, a Figma figure, for twenty five dollars, which is really good because those usually go up a pretty high price. Yeah, even even second hand. Typically, I've never seen a Figma used. Well, I've never seen a legitimate Figma used for anything less than like fifty. Yeah. Um, so typically I w- their um, retail price is around eighty to ninety, or yeah, at the be- like at the best you could get would be like sixty. Uh, mm-hmm. So it really depends on the character and like how big the run was. That's very true. Uh, but still, I- I've never heard of a Figma going for twenty five dollars. <laughs> so I I did really well. Oh, and I did get one other thing. I got a Jigen Lupin Third figure. So now I have the whole gang, the whole gang. I have now in figure form. The family's together. It's it's a very happy occasion. <laughs> but yeah, Austin, very good. you got to got to keep the gang together. Yeah, uh, but Austin, how was your flea market experience? Um, it was generally pretty good. I uh, gathered myself up a nice little uh, laundry basket full of things that no longer sparked joy for me. <laughs> and I decided, well, I can, you know, uh, you know, help other people, help give other people the spark of joy that uh, that I once had for these items. I can pass that on to somebody else, and I can make a little bit of extra cash uh, on top of it uh, to pay for my badge and whatnot. Because this year I made a horrible mistake. I did not submit a single panel to Ichiban Khan because the uh, deadline for entry just came and went, just flew right past me, and I didn't get a chance to get my panels in. 
So that kind of sucked. Um, I And I think that that kind of affected my whole convention experience because I'm so used to going to these things and doing, like, many hours of panels. And I really like that. Like, it's a lot of work, and sometimes it can be very stressful to be like, oh, I have to be here at this time and here at that time, and I get to get up really early because I've got somewhere to be, and I've got to, I've got to sort of be on to do, um, to do my panels. Like, I've got to have my brain going. I've got to be thinking about you know, audio, visual, and all the stuff that I want to say, and all that stuff, all going on in my brain at once. So this particular convention sort of felt like a weird vacation, but in some ways it felt like an awkward retirement. (laughs) 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 Because it's like, it's like I know what I should be doing here, but I don't have to, and now I feel weird about it. Well, Um, I I think it it reaffirmed what you liked, and it it also showed you, like, what what issues you have with certain panels and what what you like about certain panels and so i think it's like you can look at it as like it was a reflection of of, uh of what i what i like about cons and paneling and what i want to do so that's how i would yeah i can yeah i completely agree um i would agree with that very much um it did give me a chance to go see some panels that i wouldn't otherwise go see a lot of which i was a little bit disappointed by for a variety of reasons um Mm. but i did get to meet steve bloom for the first time he's a really kind guy uh i really really love cowboy bebop so getting to getting to get spike's autograph is awesome for me i'm gonna hang it up right next to my shinichiro watanabe autograph so that's fun (laughs) um let's see what else um and i my my other mentions of the con is uh one this will be coming out from third impact anime we are going to make con bingo uh, based off certain things you always see at an anime con. Yes, that is a thing that we're going to start working on, and hopefully we can have those ready for uh, uh, for animazement. Uh, so more information on that later, but I'm excited to put that together. Yeah, I think it'll be really fun. And uh, if you've been to cons, uh, a number of cons, you you of the stuff you'll see on the bingo board, <laughs> you will relate to. Uh, oh yes, and uh, I guess the winner of most cosplayed character or franchise this uh, this year at the con was, of course, My Hero Academia, mm-hmm. because it is the most popular uh, mainstream shonen anime at the t- at this point. It's I think it's overtaken Attack on Titan at this point. Oh, by a huge margin. Yeah, so. Uh, and I can't blame him because, uh, you know, back way back in the day whenever Titan first came out, I cosplayed from it. And, man, those belts are a pain in the butt. <laughs> and I'm sure it is way easier for someone to, you know, buy that buy that UA uniform and just slap it on and just have a grand old day. And get a green wig and you're good to go. There you go. I will... A little Count, Count Dooku right there. I will say that in doing my Link cosplay, the belts, they just, they they feel like they cut on your skin when you move. They're just not very comfortable when you move. No, no. Mm. All right, you guys ready to move into KonMari? Yeah. They have so much stuff. It's a never-ending battle to fight the clutter. With the baby coming, we got to get our stuff in order. We had a downsize from a four-story house to a two-bedroom apartment. I lost my husband. I don't know that I have everything it takes to get rid of his belongings. Hello. Hello. 
I'm Maria Kondo. 私のミッションは片付けによって世界をときめかせていくことです Now, if you haven't heard of Marie Kondo, she is a self-help guru who gained notoriety with her organizational method, the KonMari method, and her book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, first published in 2011 and then released in English in 2014. The basic premise of the KonMari method uh, is to, we need to organize our, organize our life by getting rid of what doesn't spark joy in our lives? So the way she describes it, it's this feeling that we have when we hold an item uh, that could be anything from clothing to electronics to a uh, childhood toy, uh, any, anything that's, that counts as a possession in your home. Uh, through, the world, through the word of mouth, uh, the KonMari method has gained a strong following, and on January 2019, uh, this year, uh, Netflix released Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, a six-episode miniseries with, uh, where Marie Kondo helps couples or families organize their living spaces. The reason why we're doing a sequel uh, for KonMari is because of the Netflix show, so I think we should start off there. Uh, what did you guys think of the Netflix show Tidying Up? Mm -hmm. So I guess, uh, Sully, since you sort of, uh, back whenever we did this first episode, you introduced us all to, uh, to Mari Kondo and her, uh, and her interesting ways of dealing with, uh, junk. So, uh, yeah, how did you, uh, what did you think of the, uh, show since you were sort of a pre-established fan already for quite a while at this point? Well, I think it's kind of important to mention that I first kind of came to know her through her book and I didn't actually read her book I listened to the audiobook and when I listened to the audiobook the woman who reads it is very stern and talks in a very calculated almost staccato manner and she sounds very cold and then when you watch Mari Kondo the person on TV she is this very uh, sunny effervescent woman who's just very bouncy and cutesy and it's it's very different I think than the book which uh, both the combination of me listening to that person reading it and the actual translation is, is very robotic in places. I think some of uh, Mari Kondo's in, uh, eccentricities or idiosyncrasies are actually more of a result of this way that she kind of comes across in the book, which was translated looking back at it and reading some more about it somewhat awkwardly and then sort of explain some of her background quite a way. So it was really refreshing to see her in person. Uh, in her own element being so you know bright and happy because even when she's on like Good Morning America she's a little more reserved but here yeah. uh, she seems as one person put to be the sort of Japanese Mary Poppins who just sort of comes into your <laughs> life and wants the best for you which so oh, I love that <laughs> 
So I, I really kind of took even more of a shine to her as I watched this because uh, I kind of was worried. I'm like, a lot, a lot of her stuff is very regimented and sort of it can come off as robotic, but seeing her explain it uh, in person, it, it, it seems a little more like common sense. Like, yeah, maybe you should put things back where they belong. Or, well, if you fold them this way, it might look a little better or it might be easier to reach instead of it coming off kind of as like, if you do it this way, it'll be more uh, efficient human person. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I have calculated this to the nth degree. It's it's a little more humanistic right. and, and fun the way she shows it in the show. Yeah, and I think it. I think her methods are sort of whenever you can see them directly contextualized in how in how they're supposed to be performed practically, rather than just like reading her book or reading an article or or, or whatever. Um, and just to see the way that she explains it to people, sort of in real life, it's just like it's exactly what you said. It's like, oh well, this does make sense. Like her rather peculiar and very specific way of folding clothes, for example, is it makes a lot of sense because the way that she does it it's you can clearly see exactly what each folded piece of clothing is it's very purposeful it's not just quirky for the sake of being unique or what have you it's like it's it's very purposeful and she explains it very well and she walks people through it she's very kind and it it just works yeah one thing i want to talk about is just these the show is very different from typical reality shows that you'd see on TV. So I'm gonna use like a uh, as a it's not the same thing, uh, but it's similar to where uh, a show like uh, Kitchen Nightmares, where Gordon Ramsay comes in and he's going to fix your restaurant or your hotel, and where unlike most American shows where the the host or the person who's coming in to fix the thing is there all the time and is also very combative with whoever they're trying to help. This is the exact opposite. Where yes. Mari Kondo comes in for like a day and basically describes kind of what sh- what's the idea of the KonMari method. And then she says, goodbye, I'll see you in about a couple weeks. Where the couple or the family has to do it pretty much on their own and the other th- and they're also very they might be a little confused on the KonMari method or they might not understand it at first but they're not very combative which is something I had to get used to as, as I was watching the show I was like why aren't they like no this method doesn't make any sense why wasn't there any I was a little surprised that there wasn't any like typical American production of just like the this creepy like violin music of of just like there's a conflict happening. This is like a, the man, the manufactured drama of reality shows. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that show that was like really popular in like the early two thousands. How clean is your house? With the two British ladies who come over and there's like the psycho strings playing over the dirty houses but here like she comes in she's like oh yeah your house is nice like it's cluttered yeah but you know that she even says i like mess it's it's very sort of yeah. 
she it she seems like a therapist almost like she's not here to judge you she's just like you, you said you needed help here i am i'm here to help you i'm not going to turn your home into a sideshow spectacle and that was you know weirdly refreshing for me it's just you know i know she comes into the house of the family who's downsizing and me if i were in there i'm like this is just so cluttered i'm stressed out but she's just like you know if you wanted me to help you here we go and but you have to do it like she's frequently like i'm not i'm not a maid <laughs> Right or like I I one episode I watched was it was a I think a Pakistani family that lived in California and the uh, the wife or the woman of the of the household uh, kept saying like I can't wait for you to do your magic and she kept repeating that saying over and over again where eventually Conrad said well I'm I'm excited to help you but I don't do magic it's you that have it's you that has to do it. And the thing that's interesting about the show is they have basically, they give people camcorders or some sort of camera where it's themselves recording them doing the KonMari method. And it's a lot of self-reflection of just like, this is my issue. And it's them talking, talking it out with their family, not really talking it out with Mari Kondo, which is different. Usually it's the... It's the host or the person who's coming in to fix that they always go go to to talk to about their problem. Right. I think that one part of the KonMari method that's very unique compared to a lot of other shows like this or, or that it can be in a certain way um, is that she kind of just gives them the tools and gives them the direction and then just pushes them in the right direction to go. And they ultimately have to make the final decision. Like, even when they ask for her consultation on things, just like, well, do you think, or, like, should I really keep this? Should I get rid of this? So-and-so. She's just like, she contextualizes it in a way that they make the decision, and she doesn't make it for them. Mm -hmm. Um, Where she kind of, it's very much like a therapist, where she might give, like, a simple, like, how does this relate to you? Or, like, a simple suggestion, but she keeps it vague enough where it's really up to the family or the individual person to decide kind of like what you said Sully she's very she approaches this in a very non-judgmental way and I think that the fact that she she there are so many moments where she actively empathizes with what the people are doing where she often she talks about like oh yeah like um like my house is messy sometimes my kids are you know I had to teach them how to clean too they're not all perfect and like sometimes my uh house gets messy I'm not always perfect sometimes I have I struggle with these things too so it's not like she's portrayed as it's not like she's sort of depicted as this perfect person she's she struggles with the same things it's just that she's sort of crystallized a method in which she thinks that people can really benefit from doing things in in this particular way and then she's just like well hopefully that this can work out for you and I think uh, the other thing is just like that's the image that people have of her because she looks so perfect in like the uh, different colored uh, dress that she wears with a white top uh, and very much like you seem to be all together when throughout the show she's like no I, I have my difficulty moments and I have messes too where it's it's not mm-hmm. completely perfect which is a nice change of pace uh, it's really interesting to me because in the book like she says like you have to do it in this order and you should do it this and, like it's very regimented and I I sort of expected her to be more rigid but she frequently says well if you think this will work better this way for you then that's completely fine and I think you know that's 
so much more approachable, and I think that's why it might work a little better for a lot of people, because she's not really asking you to, you know, change your life. She's just asking you to be more mindful about how you take care of your possessions and organize your home and add new things into your home. And, you know, when we think about minimalism, which she's often compared to, and I think that's a very unfair comparison, like I said, I think she's more mindfulness than minimalism. Uh, you see the pictures of the very stark white houses that have nothing in They're very, very almost overly pretty and very empty and full of straight lines. And, you know, when you see the after pictures of the other houses, like, they look like their houses. They don't look like minimalist, you know, design pieces that people talk about and people write about. They look like people live there. They just look like cleaner, more organized people live yeah. there. Like they, they still feel right. human and lived in as opposed to, I think, what people think well, the after picture will look like where it looks like, you know, a combination of a rock garden and an apple ad. <laughs> or where, where it'll be uh, cold and sterile. But no, you, like you're saying, it's it still looks like people live in these, in these houses. And one thing that I like about the show is the Yes, the organization of your possessions is a key thing, but usually the messy house is hiding another underlying problem. Like, um, there's a young adult uh, gay couple that has this feeling of wanting to be more mature and maturity and wanting to be uh, have more... Ex not acceptance, but uh, seem more adult Being by... Yeah, being able to impress, uh, what was the the one guy really wanted to impress his parents or something? Yeah, wanted to really impress his parents to show that he was more, uh, he was growing up being more of an adult. Uh, or mm -hmm. how, in the first episode, it's a family with two young kids, and their main issue is just, like, they feel like they have no life because they're constantly going back and forth between managing their kids and taking care of the house, and they feel that they, there's bad communication um, between them, uh, whereas the by getting rid of the clutter, it allows them to focus on the the problem that was hiding all along. Right, exactly, and sort of she she hammers home that idea of how your your living space affects you, um, in in many ways. Like she does this um, small little. Uh, thing every time she comes into a new house where she uh, peacefully like sits on the floor and she does what she calls like greeting the house um, and she contextualizes it in the first episode of being like uh, just take a moment to sit quietly and just think about your living space and thank it for what it does for you um, and I think maybe to an American audience that seems kind of weird um, but I think that Partially, that probably comes out of the Japanese uh, idea of, like, everything having a spirit to it. Um, sort of a, a cultural thing that, that, they, that they value. Um, and I think that that's really important because uh, American culture seems to be, like, we just treat things as things, not as something that we should really appreciate or necessarily be thankful for. And I think a lot of people sort of throw around the uh, the phrase, you know, be thankful for what you have, but they sort of forget what that really means and what that looks like in how you're supposed to, like, deeply think about that, not, not just on a surface level. It's like, yes, I'm thankful for um, my DVD collection, but I'm not 
I'm not thankful for my DVD collection just because I have it or because it exists. I'm thankful because it brings me joy, and if e- that makes sense. Um, so in a way, I am thankful to and it even with things for bringing that aren't me joy. Like you know? fun items. Like I think about when I was a child, my mom and grandma used to say, like, don't be so heavy-handed with that, or like put things back with it. Like respecting items, like in like, well, yeah, my shoes or. Right. Uh, the spoon or whatever aren't exactly my favorite things. Like they don't jump up at me, and I think, God, I love that I have them. But I use them every day, and they serve a purpose. And I, maybe I should be more careful or more considerate to the things that I have, you know. And so they'll last longer, and they'll look nicer, and right. I won't have to go get a new or whatever. Like I feel like the sort of animism that she shows towards objects is more mm-hmm. just like, well, you know, you're pretty lucky to have these things. It's almost like that, you know, there are some people in this world who don't have X, Y, Z argument, but, you know, kind of not saying that, but have this thing, and it serves mm-hmm. a purpose. It, it's a tool in some way, or it's a beautiful thing in some way, so respect it and enjoy it and appreciate it. Right, it's like my refrigerator does not necessarily... Uh spark joy in a sense but i really like to eat and i like to eat fresh food and that sparks joy and my refrigerator helps me get to that point so in an indirect way it's just like well duh of course my refrigerator sparks joy yeah i think that's one thing that people get hung up on with the KonMari method is when she says sparks joy people took it take it at face value and it's a very simplistic phrase at on face value and people get hung up on that but I think just the key thing is, like, do you have a strong memory with an item? Is it practical in your life? Uh, I think that's the way I would approach the KonMari method of, does it have a strong emotional attachment to me? Do I actively use it um, throughout the week or throughout the day? Is it practical or useful within my life? Mm-hmm. And that's how I would approach it. Mm-hmm. Or if it's something that you just really, really appreciate having, and if it's a non-essential, and you have it, and it doesn't really bring you happiness, then it's okay to part with it. Like, And that's sort of the idea of her, her, clean, her tidying process, sort of, it allows you to sort of step back, look at all the things that you have, and think, okay, so what of the things that I have do I really actively like or love? or enjoy, or need, and then everything else you can let go of. Yeah, like a, like a prime example, kind of going to our flea market uh, talk at Ichi, one thing I took with me was a DVD copy of Wolf's Rain that I had bought a couple years prior, and I sold it at the flea market because I bought it on a whim, I've had it for probably three years at this point and I still have not actively watched it so I probably knowing myself if I haven't watched it in three years I probably am not going to uh, get to it anytime soon so I am going to sell this to someone who will probably enjoy it way more than I do understandable and that's a perfectly logical way to think through that situation when evaluating how you feel about this certain item. Yeah. Uh, One other thing I like to mention about the show is I like the diversity in the people that she goes to. Mm -hmm. Like, um, the first episode, it's a young young couple dealing with two young children. 
another uh, another one it's a widower uh another one it's a uh, gay couple that's uh kind of getting into uh young adulthood um there uh, there's a f- older couple that's about to enter into retirement age so i think just the diversity of of the people that she sees brings about a different situations and it it doesn't get repetitive um which I which I think is appreciated as a viewer. I agree, and it sort of just goes to show that this is not something that only applies to young people or only is like only the kids are into it or something like that. And this is not not anything that that mom and dad can benefit from because they're old or whatever. But this is something that's like useful for everyone because I mean we've all got it, to some degree a lot of us. Well, let me restart that thought. A lot of us have too much stuff, no matter how old or young you are, and it's okay to evaluate if you really want all that stuff. One thing's really interesting is I read an article that's like, isn't the KonMari method only really applicable to very wealthy people? Because it's a very fair criticism that minimalism in itself, again, which is often kind of tied in with her, even though I don't think that's fair, um, is very much associated with the affluent, and... I don't think this is because it's not asking you to get all your stuff. It's asking you to think, you know, do I do I consume more than I need or do I buy things frivolously or do I not organize my home? I mean, it's as much about organizing your home and putting things back where they belong. Like the amount of time she sell, uh, like says to people, put things back where you belong is kind of funny. <laughs> but I was reading yeah. an article where she's this woman uh, who was writing about KonMari in the TV show was saying, you know... You know, I don't need. I can't afford a toaster that sparks joy. I have to live with the one I have, and that's kind of not listening to what she's saying. She's not saying your toaster doesn't spark joy. Go buy a fancy, pretty one you like to look at. She's saying, well, what sparks joy about the toaster is learning to appreciate, you know, and treat it better, and you know, mm-hmm. be happy that you have something that makes toast for mm-hmm. you. And I feel mm-hmm. like a lot of the sort of hot takes that people are giving about this are, are kind of disingenuous. I'm not saying there's nothing that can be critiqued about Mari Pondo. There's some things she oh. does I don't agree with or approve of, but for the most part, I'm like, how dare you try to attack this sweet this sweet ball of sunshine who I, only wants to clean the world? I, the, oh, it's, it's a hot take machine right now going on the internet, and that's really bugging me, just because it's like, her method has its issues, of course, and nothing's perfect, but I think it's just people are over-focusing on the simplicity of the message and the wording, the wording especially, of of Sparks Joy. And I think just people think of what does that mean in the abstract, because it doesn't have a very strict definition when people fir- first hear it. It's And it's... It, and it can be a flexible definition depending on the person and so I think mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the hot takes are coming from is just the very like this isn't a hard definition that I can understand uh, which is just kind of like well mm-hmm. it's really up to you and how you interpret it and what when it comes to joy like a, a joyous thing to you might be an anime figure it might be just your car, or it, it could be a simple, like, t- uh, toy that you had growing up. Like, for me, uh, what sparks joy for me is growing up, I played a lot with uh, toy soldiers and Hot Wheels and Matchbox and 
I love those things, and even though I don't play with them anymore, I'm still going to keep them because of the strong mm-hmm. memories they have for me. Mm-hmm. And that's a perfect example of Spark Joy, so Mari Kondo would want you to keep those. It's interesting, though, that she uh, she sort of has this idea of making sure your house is in order so your life is in order, and people have talked about how that ties with control, and I have to admit... The reason, I got into, the reason I actually wanted to seek out the book to read in the first place was I felt like my life was out of control and I felt, I, mostly for me it was also the stress of constantly moving and moving books and figures and clothes and being like, okay, what if I just had less stuff and then the book and uh, one of the things she says I disagree with, she's like, oh, if you try this, you might lose weight. And I'm like, I, I, little out there and I don't think that's how the body works, but okay. Um, and... I, I will agree that one of the reasons I did it, and I, I read an article saying this, is I got into it because it gave me a sense of control. It's like, well, I have less stuff to worry about, and my environment feels very... It's like I have shaved off the excess, so I feel as though I'm in control, and I think that's where a lot of... Uh, some of this backlash also comes in as people, you know, saying, oh, it's human to be cluttered. And I'm like, yes, it's, it's, I want a house that feels lived in, I don't want to live in these minimalist spaces where it's very empty and cold and feels like it only exists to look good in a picture. But like I said, when you see the after pictures in the TV show, like they don't feel inhuman. They don't feel so beautiful that they're, you know, untouchable, like you're scared to live in them. No, they just feel more organized. There's a difference between like her Instagram feed, which is made to be an advertising thing, and then the reality of these people's homes after they do it with her. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think also you could apply it to people like the KonMari method because, like you were saying, it gives people a sense of calming and uh, gets rid of stress. And also, I think it probably also gives them a sense of, well, the outside world, whether that be my job or politics or whatever stresses you out in the outside world, having a organized, somewhat... Uh, uh, lived uh, organized house uh, gives me a sense of control and calm like you were saying mm-hmm. and it's something that most people have even even if they don't necessarily live by themselves most people do have some sort of ability to control the way that their living space is on some level um, and I think that that level of control can be liberating for some people because they can be like well I might not be able to affect so much in the outside world or my job necessarily or school or what have you but I can I can decide how my room looks or something like that and when it looks good and is pleasing to you well that can be pleasing that can be that can be more than just on its surface level that can please you in a in a deeper way that makes you feel more in tune with your space and more uh more confident that where you're living is not a a stressor uh i just have two minor complaints about the show uh overall i really like the show my only complaints are uh mari kondo is uh japanese and so she has a translator with her uh, to talk to um, the majority of the families. And one thing that Netflix does, which kind of frustrates me, is sometimes they'll have the translator speak on her behalf, or she will just talk in Japanese and then the subtitle will come up. And this is more of 
an aesthetic choice of just I kind of wish they chose one or the other and not both because it just kind of just like is a sense of order I guess in my head of just like well could you just have either the translator talk all the time or have her subtitled it's just it's it's kind of it's a little OCD thing I know I think that might be because the show's probably also going to be in Netflix in Japan, so they probably have edited it slightly differently depending on the region, and so it would make more sense for them to see uh, Kondo herself talking in Japanese, and then they probably don't, you know, have the uh, translator with her, like, come through in the audio as much in the Japanese. I don't know, that's, that was my theory, because I kind of thought funny the same that, uh, It's funny that you had that complaint, because Tori has gotten me into watching everything with subtitles, even, like, English movies. Yes, um, I'm the same so. way. <laughs> so yeah, I, I watch everything with subtitles now, and uh, it, it, it didn't bother me because the subtitles are on the whole time. And then my other, this, this is more of a question, but these people are getting rid of a lot of stuff, and sometimes they occasionally show like, oh, we're, we're donating it to a Goodwill type service, but I'm just wondering like, so are you selling all this stuff? Or are you just get, throwing it away? Because it's like... If I had all those massive amounts of clothes, or if I was getting rid of a bunch of DVDs and books, I wouldn't just throw them away, or just, uh, I would try and get some money back. <laughs> I feel like they probably were, maybe on some level, maybe with some of the more expensive things, but most of the time when people want to get rid of clothes, they just take them to Goodwill. Yeah, like, uh, the one place that, um the young gay couple they go to is I love they go to they go to the store called the Out of the Closet. That's an actual uh, I, uh, popular store in that area apparently. I've seen people mention it several times. Oh. Well I, I kind of like the punny name of it. Uh, I just want so to mention it, oh sorry. No nothing and it's like that was the one example I saw of them of someone going forward and donating their stuff away to a Goodwill type service. I just want to mention another thing that's been brought up in the backlash, which I keep going back to, is this idea of like throwing away stuff. And the book just uses the word discard, which I think is a more neutral term, but I think people often associate as throw away into the garbage. Uh, but if you are yourself about to go on like your own little KonMari journey, or you're just trying to cut back in any way, I would really highly recommend like Goodwill or... Um, I actually interned at a place called Reconsider Goods, which was a creative reuse center where we took in all sorts of things like like old dolls and papers and photos and anything and sold it as art supplies and as vintage goods to people. And if you can find something like that in your community, I would highly recommend it um, because it's, it's a lot better than just throwing things into a landfill, even though there are some things which will end up in a landfill. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Right, but you should at least try and put it through the filter of like a charity or a goodwill or a or a secondhand goods store or sell I mean, it for a profit. I mean, these flea markets sure, at cons are great for making some extra cash. Exactly, and especially if you're going to be doing this kind of like we said in our first episode, applying the KonMari method to your otaku lifestyle. That's a great way to do it. I'm I'm not sure exactly how prevalent um, otaku flea market or otaku flea market like stuff is. Uh, around the country and the various con scenes around around the nation and around the world and stuff but if you've got a convention that does it please take advantage of it it's really really useful uh 
Yeah, because I, I, to- I totally forgot about the flea market, and there was a bunch of other stuff that I probably could have taken with me just to get rid of. And it's just nice to declutter, and you're making a profit. Someone gets to enjoy the former thing that you had, and you might also mm-hmm. find another thing that you've been looking for, so everybody wins. So we did get a couple of questions from Facebook here. So our first one here is from Jeff, and Jeff asks... When is the time to get rid of DVDs, especially when Blu-rays are becoming cheaper and more expansive? Note, this is only in reference to shows that have been re-released on Blu-ray. Old favorites that have never been reprinted are exempt from this question. So I guess, for me, this totally just depends on the individual situation. So, like, for example, if like the dvd that was released is like particularly low quality like lower than a standard dvd should be and the blu-ray is like a significant improvement i would say upgrade um if the blu-ray has like a whole bunch of like brand new special features that were never on the dvd um just depending on how much like that tv show or movie means to you you might want to consider upgrading but, like, some things don't necessarily benefit a whole lot from, from an HD transfer necessarily. Like, I'll say one thing. Um, somewhat recently, I rewatched um, Toy Story on Blu-ray. And if you recall, like, Toy Story was made in, like, the early 90s. Um, and it's very primitive CG animation compared to the things that we have now. So it doesn't really hold up visually super well whenever it was transferred into like a very, very crisp high definition. So honestly, I think Toy Story would look a lot better on DVD personally. Um, so I think it really it really just depends on what it is. Uh, one example I have is uh, I upgraded to the Blu-ray of the Rocky Horror Picture Show and uh, in the movie there's two scenes. Uh, one that takes place in Janet's bedroom and one that takes place in Brad. And Janet's bedroom is put through a pink filter and Brad's is put through a blue filter. Um, and then the Blu-ray, for some reason, Janet is still pink, but Brad's is like, uh, there's no blue filter. It's just shot regularly, almost like through a white filter. And it just doesn't make sense. It looks weird when you kind of counterbalance it to the other scene, which is put through the heavy pink. And I don't understand what they were thinking when they did that, but kind of always like bothers me when I watch it now like even though the rest of the film looks pretty okay I do have some problems like that one scene is so jarring because I don't know why they did that um when I I didn't get a blu-ray play until a few years ago and when I did I thought well I guess I have to get rid of all my dvds now because they're obsolete but dvds really are still sometimes the best way to watch something and they're still ubiquitous they're not going to go away very fast like uh, VHS did and so I'm having to kind of teach myself to be more discerning about what I get on DVD and what I get on Blu-ray and like is it worth it Uh, are the features better like I know uh, when Hocus Pocus this year got or last year rather got its 25th anniversary uh, Blu-ray uh, I have the DVD, like the cheap DVD they put out God knows when, and it's not anything fancy, and the Blu-ray is not much better. Like They gave some fancy menus and a few extras that are okay, but the actual picture quality is like only nominally better. Like I think only if you squint would you think it's any better, so... Um, <laughs> now that I've gotten more into buying used DVDs like from used bookstores and stuff, I've just 
kind of had to teach myself that most of the time there's not going to be much difference for most movies that I'm into between a Blu-ray and a DVD. Uh, some I will chill out more for a Blu-ray, like I'm really excited about that Perfect Blue uh, Blu-ray coming out, or um, or Criterion. If there's a Criterion, I will always probably pick the Blu-ray over the DVD. But for mm-hmm. you know, eighty percent of most things I watch, there's not going to be much of a difference. I mean, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think you mentioning uh, Perfect Blue. Uh, is a good example because the original DVD of Perfect Blue was pretty trash looking, but uh, I can almost guarantee you that this new Blu-ray transfer is going to be like a proper HD remaster of that film. Before we were recording, we were talking about you know whether or not Ursa Yatsura might get, uh, or or during the recording, I, I my timeline is messed up. We'll get a decent release, and as you said, like I I I've seen some of the Blu-ray coming out of Japan, and it does look really good, but. You know, I'm wondering if it'll be enough to justify a huge, heavy treatment. I mean, I wanted a Cutie Honey Blu-ray, but the more I watch the DVD of the original 70s series, it's like, it's probably going to look as it's going to look, and in a Blu-ray player that upscales DVDs, it looks amazing. Mm -hmm. So, like, there's a point where you're just kind of like, there's not much difference other than the marketing, honestly. Right. Yep. So... Yeah, my advice would be, like, I wouldn't purge your DVDs just because the Blu-rays exist. I would evaluate it based on, like, a case-by-case sort of situation. Become a an, an informed consumer. Yep, yep. Y- yep. All right, let's see. Next question here. Uh, we got a question from Basil from the Awesome Cast. He seems to always want to, ans- want to uh, ask us very interesting questions, so thank you, Basil. Uh... When does an anime no longer spark joy for you? So, I guess, well, typically, uh, Mari Kondo is talking about, like, your physical possessions, but I guess in this question, he's talking more so about, like, fandom? Like, when you, fandom, or, like, how much you like an anime, like, because I think we've all been in the situation where, like, we've... We were really into something like a while ago, but it just isn't something that we're into now. And I think that 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 can reflect in your physical possessions because, like, I'm not going to keep all of this merchandise of X show or X movie if I don't really like it anymore. Um, So I guess it does matter more, like, if you actively like the thing in general, not just, like, the DVD or the plushie or whatever. Um, so I guess, like, for you guys, when does an anime no longer spark joy for you? I, I mean, for me, I embarrassingly was in the Black Butler fandom when I was in high school, and I grew out of it, and I think everyone has a series or franchise that gave them joy at one point, and then, you know, there comes a time where you have to look at all that Grell merchandise you bought and say, (laughs) wow, why did I do this? And, but also say, you know, it made me happy at the time, and I sold it all off and that's just part of life i mean we have burnout and you know sometimes we burn out and we don't spark joy back up i lost control of that metaphor and it skidded off the road and (laughs) took out several pedestrians um no it was a beautiful car crash yeah but but like uh i think that that's just kind i mean she talks about physical objects and sometimes fandom is represented in physical objects as we've spoken about but i think also like just you know, there comes a time where we have to let go. And sometimes, like, uh, I was going to mention this earlier, but an example of doing the KonMari thing and then regretting it, uh, I, 
uh, as I mentioned in the Batman Ninja podcast we do, have a very weird dynamic with with Batman comics and DC comics, and we've got kind of a, our own Sam and Diane thing going on, where we fight and bicker and then always end up making out, and I don't know why. But I actually sold... Wow, you know, you're a little closer to Batman than I realized. <laughs> hey, uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> But I actually sold off, like, several years' worth of trade paperbacks because I'm not a floppies person. They stress me out because they're so degradable and they tear. So, and I don't... I like to read my books. I don't want to just bag and board them and stare at them. But I lost years of collected trade paperbacks because I decided, well, I'm burnt out. I guess it means that... Does, I guess that means they don't spark joy anymore. And I sold them all off at a flea market, a con flea market, and uh, at a used bookstore. And... I have never regretted something so much in my life. I kept one book, uh, the Batman animated uh, art book, which is very valuable now, so I'm glad I held on to that. And I will hold on to it unless someone tries to yank it out of my cold, dead hands. But <laughs> I still sold off a lot of books that I kind of regret selling. Some I don't because I barely remember them. So obviously I did it kind of right. But I remember in particular I had an art book it was uh, there was a series of trading cards done in the 90s and they were painted and the artists behind them put out an art book of the paintings and the sketches and the pre pre preliminaries excuse me and then uh sort of going through their process and it was i mean some of the paintings are kind of ugly i mean some people didn't like them i liked some of them some i thought were hideous but i still enjoyed skimming through this book and it was always a book that you know if people looked on my shelf they're like oh I, i've never seen this and I got it for like eight bucks on eBay once, and I'm kind of embarrassed that I miss it to the point I'm probably gonna have to look it up again and pay like five to eight bucks for this book that I threw out because I thought I would spark joy. So I will give everyone this advice: is be very careful because part of it is you might give away something that you didn't want to give away after all, and you'll miss it. But I guess if it truly sparked joy, you're willing to pay for it again. <laughs> Um, for me, I don't really have an anime that I haven't, like, lost spark of joy. Like, I still love G Gundam, I still enjoy Yu Hakusho, and all the stuff I grew up on. It's usually other things that I've kind of lost joy over. For So, if, this is going to be a very bill example of, I for a while, I was really into Doctor Who audio plays. Um, and I would buy the latest releases for the latest Doctor because I wanted to keep up with the story. But I've come to realize that I still enjoy them, but I just I have no desire to keep up with the story uh, right now because, one, I know it's Doctor Who, it's never going to stop. <laughs> and two, it, it can be a very pricey endeavor. Because they have so many spinoff ranges off so many characters, and it's just at a certain point, I just kind of got, I I've kind of got to the point where I'll buy it at a good price point, but I uh, don't need to get it right away. Um, and I have enough uh, Doctor Who audio plays, like I think I have over a hundred at this point, where just like I have enough of a of a catalog or a library that I can just download and listen to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really think I could add anything that you guys haven't already said. Just if it was fine-tuned to me, it would pretty much be the same story. Uh, so I'll just move on to uh, Basil's next question. So how in the world does her method work for most Shonen Jump series? 
uh, I would say that hey, if if owning every like eighty to a hundred volume book of One Piece that has come out, <laughs> if that if that sparks joy for you, then hey, that's fine. Go for it and keep those. In but her, I mean, if it doesn't, you don't have to. In her second book, she meets a comedian that she uh, is hired on as uh, the comedian hires her as a client, and this comedian collects pachinko machines and has like in one room like a dozen loud flashing pachinko machines and she talks about how just overwhelming it was for her and stressful because of all these noisy arcade machines but she's like you know it makes her happy so I'm going to center and focus this part of the thing with my client around these pachinko machines because if this is what gives her joy then I want this to really be a special place for her and so as much as people I think assume that Mari Kondo wants everyone to live like Mari Kondo which God knows I couldn't uh, it's really more just saying, you know, find the things in your life that really make you happy and give you purpose and make you want to get up in the morning and try to focus on them and also learn how to pick up after yourself because you're all adults. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you're going to own all of One Piece, you need to make sure it's on your shelf in order. One, two, three, uh, through volume one million. Uh, I, as a One Piece fan, I... I love One Piece, but for me, I I can't own any of like the Funimation releases or the or the manga because it's just so much of it, and I would just be overwhelmed. Like it, the manga, since it'll probably go into the hundreds at this point, um, would probably take up two shelving units or two sh- uh, two shelves, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. where it just like if I really wanted to read it, I I will go the digital route. Or I will just keep up with the anime because that's much easier and less stressful than having all these books. Though maybe the one piece, the one One Piece thing I will get is maybe an occasional figure, <laughs> and that'll be about it. And you did bring up a good point there, Bill. It's like I would say that with manga and comics and that sort of stuff, especially when there's good digital options out there. Unless it's something like you really, really love and you want your own copy of it, which is totally understandable, um, maybe consider going the digital route. Um, there's always the risk there with things, you know, not always being guaranteed that they're going to be available digitally all the time. So physical physical versions are still always going to be king for that reason. Um, but you know, if yeah. if you're somebody that really likes to consume this stuff, you don't necessarily need to own a physical copy of all of it. Yeah, like um, in the manga space, Shonen Jump just re- just came out with their service of give us two dollars a month and you get access to our entire catalog, which includes Dragon Ball and mm-hmm. One Piece and My Hero Academia, um, which is great because you can just access that content on the app, read it at your leisure, and not be so overwhelmed by uh, having to have all the books if you want to reread them. Now, that being said, I think for certain things, I like to have physical editions, like especially art books, like Austin, you recently gave me a One Piece art book, which I love, and I will... I like to have the physical editions of the art because I can have more detail of it through my eye than a digital file. So I prefer, for art books, a physical version. 
one thing I've really kind of learned to do also is like use digital as a as a sort of metric to see if I want to own the physical. So like if it's something on streaming or on like the Shonen Jump thing, like if I really enjoy it and I keep going back to it, then that might be a good clue that I kind of might want to own it myself in case it doesn't stay there forever. I mean, I mm-hmm. I mean, and if you are someone who might get their digital copies from less than legal means, if you're a pirate perhaps and you might think that well if i like it this much maybe i should get the fit like that's for me a way i've used to justify getting digital thing or physical things is instead of thinking well i'll buy it and i might hate it well i know i like this i know i want this so i feel more justified in spending the money and taking up the physical space with it Mm -hmm. i mean to go back to the Shonen Jump example, I own I love Dragon Ball, but I only own uh, the manga and the anime surrounding the Frieza arc. I I have seen the others; they're fine. I like them, but if I'm like in a storm with no internet and somehow I have power to watch movies, I would rather watch the Frieza arc again than anything else. So, like, I would like to have that as a copy for myself. Makes sense. Alright, so Basil's last question is Can you apply this method with conventions? Uh, yes. Uh, think of how to contextualize like going, method into conventions. Like going uh, to a convention or the activities you do at a convention? I think I both. don't know. See, I think I think Basil is Basil is a convention director himself, so maybe he's asking it from that point of view. I'm not sure. I think I can shed some light on this for how I okay, kind of... Yeah. yeah, what's your take on that? So, I kind of see it as both actual conventions and the things that happen, so I'm going to say something that's going to be kind of cruel. I hate going to other people's panels unless I personally know them. Because every time I do, I'm very sorely disappointed. <laughs> and that's me being incredibly rude, but I've learned something. When I go to cons, the things that keep me entertained are doing my own panels, going to panels of people I know personally, or people who I respect their work already, and uh, sometimes going to the dealer's room and sometimes cosplay. And those are the four things that keep me going. So if I'm at a con where I'm not doing a panel, no one I know is doing a panel, or only a few people I know are doing a panel out the whole weekend. Uh, I'm not interested in buying anything because I don't need to spend the money, or it's not a good dealer's room, and I'm not cosplaying, or there's no good cosplay, then I'm going to be bored and upset, and I'm just not, it's going to be a waste of a weekend. So I've had to learn what does it take to make a con work for me is to have those things. So I have to have the things that spark joy to con for me. And in terms of cons themselves, like an example is uh, what we got, us were talking about, uh, some of us want to go to Animazement, some of us want to go to MomoCon, and for me, I have heard that Momo is more of a party con, it's more faster paced, and I'm not like that personally, I'm a little old lady, I like slow things, I like to skew towards an older crowd, so... I thought, well, maybe Animazement, since it's more kind of an educational and more on that side, and it's very heavy Japanese focus, maybe that's more where I need to go. So maybe Momocon doesn't spark joy for me, or maybe, you know, like Triad, I'm not going to that this year because, well, before, it was right across the street from me, basically. I lived very close to it, and I got in for free. But now it's like, well, now I live somewhere else. I'll have to drive a long way, and I don't feel like doing a panel right now. And not as many people I know are going, so 
you know, it's, it's weighing the pros and cons, and I guess that's not spark joy in the direct condo idea of it, but it's still kind of thinking about, like, you know, cons are fun, but is every con fun? Like, books are good, but do I need every book? DVDs I like, do I need every DVD? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I guess it, it can also apply, and you sort of touched on this as well, it's just like, do things at conventions that make you happy. Like, if cosplay makes you, if cosplay sparks joy, do it. If cosplay does not spark joy, don't do it. Uh, there are other ways that you can fulfill your conventioning experiences. If going to panels sparks joy, if making panels sparks joy, then just do those things that make you really happy and don't feel like you're having to force yourself to do something just because you think you have to. If sitting through someone reading the Wikipedia article on Sailor Moon and getting all the facts wrong in a panel makes your skin crawl and wants you to break your own <laughs> teeth, don't go to that panel. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like Spark Joy of a different variety. Maybe Spark Rage would be a little bit more accurate. I wanted to spark something. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, and then the last question we have here is from Adam, and he asks, Why do I keep watching Black Clover? I don't know, man. If it's not Spark and Joy, don't watch it. Because you're hate-watching it, which is a real thing? Is that Maybe, the show with I all mean, the screaming? Yeah, that's the show with the screaming. So, if you, if you are hate-watching it, and you're enjoying it, and that's sparking joy for you, hey, man, go for it. But if it's yeah. not, man, cut it out. Just go. Yeah. Leave. Run away. Yeah, I mean, hate-watching it can be fun, because you make fun of it, and it makes you feel good. So, I, I get it. <laughs> All right. Well, best of luck to you in uh, in figuring out f- doing your uh, personal uh, internal uh, exploration as to why you are subjecting yourself to that series. All right, guys. So unless there's anything else you wanted to bring up, I think that's probably it for this episode. Um, I I I enjoyed our talk, and uh, Sully, I'm uh, you you had some very fine points on uh, the KonMari method. Thank you for introducing it to me. I feel bad because this, this was at one point an anime podcast and not a KonMari <laughs> fan cast. <laughs> I know, just, it's, it's, it's funny how things work out. I love that tidy angel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's great. But yeah, I mean, we, we made it relevant to anime. We talked about how it, you know, it affects the otaku lifestyle and conventions and manga and all that stuff. So this is still very, very much an anime podcast episode. Don't sell it so short. Besides, it's interesting to go outside the box once in a while. I agree. I agree. As long as and you I mean, properly sort that box afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> With another very small box that you put the bigger yes. box in. And roll sure everything. Make sure to fold your anime DVDs the proper way. And the up, you had there where they're facing up. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, it was a pleasure as always. Uh, Bill, where can people find you on social media? Uh, you can find me at wb foreman f o r e m a n nine 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 on Twitter, where I mostly retweet jokes, uh, maybe spout off about. One Piece and how Whole Kick Island will never seem to end. I want it to end so badly. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can just talk to me there. What about you, Sully? You can find me on Twitter at C A L V A underscore K U N Calvacun. And my Twitter is me sporadically deciding to either, you know, retweet something I find charming or, like, go on and vague tweet about my life. 
So it's something. Pure and noble goals indeed. Uh, as for me, you can find me over at Bebop Shock, and that's Bebop is in Cowboy Bebop, and Shock is in Bioshock, and where I will probably be talking about Kingdom Hearts 3 uh, for the next foreseeable future, just like the uh, perceivable past as well. Uh, I've been talking about Kingdom Hearts 3 for many, many years now. R.I.P. the Kingdom Hearts 3 memes. I will miss them. It's it's fine. We're just going to create brand new memes, Bill. This uh, is a time of rebirth, rediscovery, and, you're, and you're that right. old man We're, getting his comeuppance. Instead of Kingdom Hearts 3 now in development, it'll be Final Fantasy 7 now in development memes. Absolutely. Can't wait. All right, if you guys want to connect with the Third Impact Anime Podcast and all of the ways that you can do that, um, the best way to do that is over on Twitter, which is uh, twitter.com slash ti underscore anime. We also have a very, very active Facebook community group where we post a lot of cool things uh, every single day and have wonderful conversations with wonderful people. Uh, that is facebook.com slash groups slash Third Impact Anime Community. We also have a link to our Facebook page there as well. And we also have our website where it, it eh, hold on. And we also have our website, which is thirdimpactanime.com, where you can see all of the uh, blog posts that we write about various series whenever we get the inspiration to do so. Uh, you can find our episode archive over there so you can see what all the things that we've talked about before in the past are. And um, you can see some of our convention coverage and some panel notes. There's a lot of cool things over there on the website. Um, and thank you guys so much for uh, joining us for this episode, and we will uh, see you in the next one. So thanks. Bye. Be glad there's one place in the world where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to go where people know people are all the same. You want to go where everybody knows your name.